Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 5 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I am the host of the show. Thanks for tuning in this week, and uh, we're going to start off the show right off the bat here with two iTunes reviews. Now, as I've mentioned before, if you send in an iTunes review or a review on any other listening platform, I will produce it like I produce these short stories and play it for you on the show. And true to my word, here we go with two iTunes reviews. Exceptional Storytelling by Boy Mom 4 sd I loved your reading of The Most Dangerous Game. You were correct that I was familiar with the meaning of the phrase, but had never read the story. I was hooked from the moment our first hunter found himself swimming for his life after falling from his yacht, enthralled as he spoke with his Russian host after about his appalling hobby, and was on the edge of my seat as he ran for his life amidst the baying of the hounds. Very satisfying and excellent use of sound effects. Was really able to picture the environment. Can't wait for the next story. Story Time by Your Brain on Facts Well-read classic short stories with the correct application of music and sound effects. I play it while working around the house, but I may shift to listening before bed. Well, thank you to those two new reviewers for sending in those iTunes reviews. And of course, as I mentioned last week, that second review comes from the Your Brain on Facts podcast from our friend Moxie, and that is a great show. You should check it out if you have not yet. I have subscribed to it. I have a lot of fun listening to it. You should too. Now, on to this week's episode. If you follow the show on social media, I gave out a few clues as to who the author is this week that will be featuring on the show, and that is one Ambrose Bierce. Now, if you're familiar with Ambrose Bierce and you saw the clues on social media, you surely picked up on him pretty quick. He is a pretty distinctive character in literary history. So a little bit about Ambrose Bierce for those who are not familiar with him. I wasn't familiar with him myself before I started this show. And that is one thing that I've been very fortunate to find is uh, the work of Ambrose Bierce. It's been a lot of fun to go through uh, from what I've read so far. That'd be pretty easy to go on for a long time about the life of Ambrose Bierce. But we're going to keep it pretty simple here, pretty surface level. Uh, Ambrose Bierce was born in 1842. And he enlisted in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry during the American Civil War. And his time in the war greatly influenced his literary work and journalistic work. Now, he was actually better known for his journalism than for his fiction writing uh, during his life. And he also wrote some nonfiction, such as the memoir What I Saw of Shiloh, about the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. Uh, now, his stories, his, his fiction uh, work, generally breaks down into one of three categories, those being civil war stories, horror stories, and tall tales. And we'll get into that a little bit later on in the show. Now, I know I say this often, and I said it last week, I think I've said it every week, uh, maybe except for one, that we'll be visiting more of the catalog of the author that we're featuring. And that is true of Ambrose Bierce as well. He's got a lot of good stuff out there. And uh, if you're a lover of words and language as I am, you can't help but be enthralled by his use of the English language. It's a lot of fun to read. Now, his best known story is probably An Occurrence at Owl Creek, which is a Civil War story. Now, we won't be focusing on Civil War stories today, uh, but again, more of that a little bit later on. After Ambrose Bierce finished his service in the Union Infantry, he lived in London for a time and then returned back to the States 
and lived in San Francisco, where he worked for uh, pioneering journalism figure William Randolph Hearst, who was the owner of a few newspapers back in those days and uh, had a hand in the yellow journalism movement, uh, if memory serves from history class. Now, Ambrose Bierce worked for William Randolph Hearst at the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, It was at the Examiner that he published today's first story. That is The Man and the Snake, and that was published on June 29th, 1890. Now, The Man and the Snake can be considered a horror story, but it is also uh, darkly comedic, and that is a theme that runs through several of his stories. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the story, and we'll talk a little bit more about the life of Ambrose Bierce and uh, what eventually became of him later on. But for now, here's our first story. The Snake by Ambrose Bierce. It is of veritable report and attested of so many that there be now of wise and learned none to gainsay it that ye serpent his eye hath a magnetic property and whoso falleth into its vision is drawn forwards in despite of his will and perisheth miserable by ye creature his bite. Stretched at ease upon a sofa in gown and slippers, Harker Brayton smiled as he read the foregoing sentence in Old Morrister's Marvels of Science. The only marvel in the matter, he said to himself, is that the wise and learned in Morrister's day should have believed such nonsense as is rejected by most of even the ignorant in ours. A train of reflection followed, for Brayton was a man of thought, and he unconsciously lowered his book without altering the direction of his eyes. As soon as the volume had gone below the line of sight, something in an obscure corner of the room recalled his attention to his surroundings. What he saw in the shadow under his bed was two small points of light, apparently about an inch apart. They might have been reflections of the gas jet above him, in metal nail heads. He gave them but little thought and resumed his reading. A moment later, something, some impulse which it did not occur to him to analyze, impelled him to lower the book again and seek for what he saw before. The points of light were still there. They seemed to have become brighter than before, shining with a greenish luster that he had not first observed. He thought, too, that they might have moved a trifle, were somewhat nearer. They were still too much in shadow, however, to reveal their nature and origin to an indolent attention, and again he resumed his reading. Suddenly something in the text suggested a thought that made him start and drop the book for the third time to the side of the sofa, whence, escaping from his hand, it fell to the sprawling floor back upward. Brayton, half-risen, was staring intently into the obscurity beneath the bed, where the points of light shone with, it seemed to him, an added fire. His attention was now fully aroused, his gaze eager and imperative. It disclosed, almost directly under the footrail of the bed, the coils of a large serpent. The points of light were its eyes. Its horrible head, thrust flatly forth from the innermost coil and resting upon the outermost, was directed straight toward him, the definition of the wide, brutal jaw and the idiot-like forehead serving to show the direction of its malevolent gaze. The eyes were no longer merely luminous points. They looked into his own with a meaning, a malign significance. 2. A snake in a bedroom of a modern city dwelling of the better sort is happily not so common a phenomenon as to make an explanation altogether needless. 
Harker Braden, a bachelor of thirty-five, a scholar, idler, and something of an athlete, rich, popular, and of sound health, had returned to San Francisco from all manner of remote and unfamiliar countries. His tastes, always a trifle luxurious, had taken on an added exuberance from long privation, and the resources of even the castle hotel being inadequate to their perfect gratification, he had gladly accepted the hospitality of his friend, Dr. Druring, the distinguished scientist. Dr. Druring's house, a large, old-fashioned one in what is now an obscure quarter of the city, had an outer invisible aspect of proud reserve. It plainly would not associate with the contiguous elements of its altered environment, and appeared to have developed some of the eccentricities which come of isolation. One of these was a wing, conspicuously irrelevant in a point of architecture, and no less rebellious in matter of purpose, for it was a combination of laboratory, menagerie, and museum. It was here that the doctor indulged the scientific side of his nature in the study of such forms of animal life as engaged his interest and comforted his taste, which, it must be confessed, ran rather to the lower types. For one of the higher nimbly and sweetly to recommend itself unto his gentle senses, it had at least to retain certain rudimentary characteristics, allying it to such dragons of the prime as toads and snakes. His scientific sympathies were distinctly reptilian. He loved nature's vulgarians and described himself as the Zola of zoology. His wife and daughters not having the advantage to share his enlightened curiosity regarding the works and ways of our ill-starred fellow creatures were with needless austerity excluded from what he called the snakery and doomed to companionship with their own kind, though to soften the rigors of their lot he had permitted them out of his great wealth to outdo the reptiles in the gorgeousness of their surroundings and to shine with a superior splendor. Architecturally, and in point of furnishing, the snakery had a severe simplicity befitting the humble circumstances of its occupants, many of whom indeed could not safely have been entrusted with the liberty that is necessary to the full enjoyment of luxury, for they had the troublesome peculiarity of being alive. In their own apartments, however, they were under as little personal restraint as was compatible with their protection from the baneful habit of swallowing one another and as Brayton had thoughtfully been apprised, it was more than a tradition that some of them had, at diverse times, been found in parts of the premises where it would have embarrassed them to explain their presence. Despite the snakery and its uncanny associations, to which indeed he gave little attention, Brayton found life at the drawing mansion very much to his mind. 3. Beyond a smart shock of surprise and a shudder of mere loathing, Mr. Brayton was not greatly affected. His first thought was to ring the call bell and bring a servant, but although the bell cord dangled within easy reach, he made no movement toward it. It had occurred to his mind that the act might subject him to the suspicion of fear, which he certainly did not feel. He was more keenly conscious of the incongruous nature of the situation than affected by its perils. It was revolting, but absurd. The reptile was of a species with which Brayton was unfamiliar. Its length he could only conjecture. The body, at the largest visible parts, seemed about as thick as his forearm. In what way was it dangerous, if in any way? Was it venomous? Was it a constrictor? His knowledge of nature's danger signals did not enable him to say. He had never deciphered the code. If not dangerous, the creature was at least offensive. It was de trop. Matter out of place. An impertinence. The gem was unworthy of the setting. Even the barbarous taste of our time and country which had loaded the walls of the room with pictures, the floor with furniture, and the furniture with bric-a-brac, had not quite fitted the place for this bit of savage life of the jungle. Besides, insupportable thought, 
the exhalations of its breath mingled with the atmosphere with which he himself was breathing. These thoughts shaped themselves with greater or less definition in Brayton's mind and begot action. The process is what we call consideration and decision. It is thus that we are wise and unwise. It is thus that the withered leaf in an autumn breeze shows greater or less intelligence than its fellows, falling upon the land or upon the lake. The secret of human action is an open one. Something contracts our muscles. Does it matter if we give to the preparatory molecular changes the name of will? Brayden rose to his feet and prepared to back softly away from the snake, without disturbing it if possible, and through the door. Men retire so from the presence of the great, for greatness is power, and power is a menace. He knew that he could walk backward without error. Should the monster follow, the taste which had plastered the walls with paintings had consistently supplied a rack of murderous oriental weapons from which he could snatch one to suit the occasion. In the meantime, the snake's eyes burned with a more pitiless malevolence than before. Braden lifted his right foot free of the floor to step backward. That moment he felt a strong aversion to doing so. I am accounted brave, he thought. Is bravery then no more than pride? Because there are none to witness the shame, shall I retreat? He was studying himself with his right hand upon the back of a chair, his foot suspended. Nonsense, he said aloud. I am not so great a coward as to fear to seem myself afraid. He lifted the foot a little higher by slightly bending the knee and thrust it sharply to the floor, an inch in front of the other. He could not think how that occurred. A trial with the left foot had the same result. It was again in advance of the right. The hand upon the chair back was grasping it. The arm was straight, reaching somewhat backward. One might have said that he was reluctant to lose his hold. The snake's malignant head was still thrust forth from the inner coil as before, the neck level. It had not moved, but its eyes were now electric sparks, radiating an infinity of luminous needles. The man had an ashy pallor. Again he took a step forward, and another, partly dragging the chair, which when finally released fell upon the floor with a crash. The man groaned. The snake made neither sound nor motion, but its eyes were two dazzling suns. The reptile itself was wholly concealed by them. They gave off enlarging rings of rich and vivid colors, which at their greatest expansion successively vanished like soap bubbles. They seemed to approach his very face, and anon were immeasurable distance away. He heard somewhere the continuous throbbing of a great drum, with desultory bursts of far music, inconceivably sweet like the tones of an Aeolian harp. He knew it for the sunrise melody of Memnon's statue and thought he stood in the Nile-side reeds, hearing with exalted sense that immortal anthem through the silence of the centuries. The music ceased. Rather, it became, by insensible degrees, the distant roll of a retreating thunderstorm. A landscape, glittering with sun and rain, stretched before him, arched with a vivid rainbow framing in its giant curve a hundred visible cities. In the middle distance, a vast serpent wearing a crown reared its head out of its voluminous convolutions and looked at him with his dead mother's eyes. Suddenly, this enchanting landscape seemed to rise swiftly upward like the drop scene of the theater and vanished in a blank. Something struck him a hard blow on the face and breast. He had fallen to the floor. The blood ran from his broken nose and bruised lips. For a time, he was dazed and stunned and lay with closed eyes, his face against the floor. In a few moments he had recovered and then knew that his fall, by withdrawing his eyes, had broken the spell that held him. He felt that now, by keeping his gaze averted, he would be able to retreat. But he thought of the serpent within a few feet of his head, yet unseen. Perhaps in the very act of springing upon him and throwing its coils about his throat was too horrible. 
He lifted his head, stared again into those baleful eyes, and was again in bondage. The snake had not moved and appeared somewhat to have lost its power upon the imagination. The gorgeous illusions of a few moments before were not repeated. Beneath that flat and brainless brow, its black, beady eyes simply glittered as at first, with an expression unspeakably malignant. It was as if the creature, assured of its triumph, had determined to practice no more luring wiles. Now ensued a fearful scene. The man, prone upon the floor within a yard of his enemy, raised the upper part of his body upon his elbows, his head thrown back, his legs extended to their full length, his face was white between its stains of blood, his eyes were strained open to their uttermost expansion, there was froth upon his lips, it dropped off in flakes, strong convulsions ran through his body, making almost serpentile undulations, he bent himself at the waist, shifting his legs from side to side, and every moment left him a little nearer to the snake. He thrust his hands forward to brace himself back, yet constantly advanced upon his elbows. 4. Dr. Druring and his wife sat in the library. The scientist was in rare good humor. "'I have just obtained by exchange with another collector,' he said, "'a splendid specimen of the Ophiophagus.' "'And what may that be?' the lady inquired with a somewhat languid interest. "'Why, bless my soul, what profound ignorance!' "'My dear, a man who ascertains after marriage that his wife does not know Greek is entitled to a divorce. The Ophiophagus is a snake that eats other snakes.' "'I hope it will eat all yours,' she said, absently shifting the lamp. "'But how does it get other snakes? By charming them, I suppose.' "'That is just like you, dear,' said the doctor, with an affectation of petulance. You know how irritating to me is any allusion to that vulgar superstition of a snake's power of fascination. The conversation was interrupted by a mighty cry, which rang through the silent house like a voice of a demon shouting in a tomb. Again and yet again it sounded, with terrible distinctness. They sprang to their feet, the man confused, the lady pale and speechless with fright. Almost before the echoes of the last cry had died away, the doctor was out of the room, springing up the stairs two steps at a time. In the corridor in front of Brayton's chamber, he met some servants who had come from the upper floor. Together they rushed at the door without knocking. It was unfastened and gave way. Brayton lay upon his stomach on the floor, dead. His head and arms were partly concealed under the footrail of the bed. They pulled the body away, turning it upon the back. The face was daubed with blood and froth. The eyes were wide open, staring. A dreadful sight. Died in a fit said the scientist, bending his knee and placing his hand upon the heart. While in that position, he chanced to look under the bed. "'Good God!' he added. "'How did this thing get in here?' He reached under the bed, pulled out the snake, and flung it, still coiled, to the center of the room, whence with a harsh shuffling sound it slid across the polished floor till stopped by the wall, where it lay without motion. It was a stuffed snake. Its eyes were two shoe buttons." Well, poor Harker Brayton, you know, it's unfortunate to have to find out what happens if looks can kill. Now, a few more notes on this story and the production of this story. Ambrose Bierce uh, dealt frequently with uh, death in his story, uh, in, or in his stories, and but he treated it more as an absurdity than a tragedy, as was evidenced here 
in this particular tale. Now, one other thing about this story as it pertains to the music that uh, Mr. Harker Brayton was imagining um, in the uh, uh, in the research for this story, uh, I came across, uh, I was kind of looking up what he was talking about with the, uh, the the statues of Memnon, and I came across this, this note from Britannica.com. It says, in Egypt, the name of Memnon was connected with the colossal stone statues of Amenhotep III near Thebes, and that is... Uh, when we talk about those statues, those were 70 feet tall or 21 meters tall. Um, two of those statues are still there, and uh, the more northerly of these was partly destroyed by an earthquake in 27 BC. Now, that resulted in a curious phenomenon wherein every morning when the rays of the rising sun touched the statue, it gave forth musical sounds like the twang of a harp string. Uh, now, this was supposed to be the voice of Memnon responding to the greeting of his mother, Eos. And after the restoration of the statue by the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus in AD 170, the sound ceased, and they were attributed to the passage of air through the pores of the stone uh, in the statue, caused chiefly by the change of temperature at sunrise. Now, the sound you heard in the story was the sound of an actual Aeolian harp in Chile, and thanks to Felix Bloom of freesound.org for that clip. Now, one other note from this story, uh, the first quote that the story started out with from Morister's Marvels of Science. Now, that volume is not a real book, but it also appears in a story called The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft, from what I've read, uh, seems to have been pretty heavily influenced by Ambrose Bierce. Now, on to the next story. Our second story is titled The Damned Thing, and the story was originally published on December 7th, 1893, in a New York magazine called Town Topics. Town Topics was originally called The American Queen, and according to the bastion of all knowledge, that is Wikipedia, it was dedicated to art, music, literature, and society. It ran from 1879 to 1937, and actually eventually turned into more of a tabloid uh, looking for and exploiting scandals among the high society types. Now, this story was also reprinted in the San Francisco Examiner on September or in September of 1896. One note about this story in particular, uh, I do like to keep the language clean on this show, and that is on purpose, in part because I don't like using profanity myself, but also because I want listeners to feel safe listening to the show wherever they may be. Now, that being said, occasionally we'll have a story on the show that's a little bit more intense for younger listeners. Now, uh, a lot of times with these classic stories, the language that's used in the stories, um, you know, goes over the head of a lot of younger listeners, but... Uh, with that being said, we also have sound effects, as you know, and in this story in particular, and in some others maybe upcoming, there's some sound effects that could be a little bit scary for some of the younger listeners. So just take that into account if you're listening in the car, uh, etc. Now, with those details out of the way, let's move on to the second story of the week. not always eat what is on the table. By the light of a tallow candle which had been placed on one end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, 
for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light on it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room, darkening a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent, motionless, and the room being small not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man, who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides. He was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man only was without expectation. From the blank darkness outside came in, through the aperture that served for a window, all the ever-unfamiliar noises of the night in the wilderness. The long nameless note of a distant coyote, the stilly pulsing thrill of tireless insects in the trees, strange cries of night birds, so different from those of the birds of day, the drone of great blundering beetles, and all that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to the idle interest in matters of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of the single candle. They were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers and woodsmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said of him that he was of the world, worldly, albeit there was that in his attire which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would certainly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor, he was the only one uncovered was such that if one had considered it as an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority, for he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects, in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and the young man entered. He clearly was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel. He had, in fact, been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded. No one else greeted him. We have waited for you, said the coroner. It is necessary to have done with this business tonight. The young man smiled. "'I am sorry to have kept you,' he said. "'I went away not to evade your summons, but to post to my newspaper an account of what I suppose I am called back to relate.' The coroner smiled. "'The account that you posted to your newspaper,' he said, "'differs probably from that which you will give here under oath.' "'That,' replied the other rather hotly and with visible flush, "'is as you please. I used manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent.' It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction. It may go as part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. The coroner was silent for a time, his eyes upon the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently, the coroner lifted his eyes and said, We will resume the inquest. The men removed their hats. The witness was sworn. "'What is your name?' the coroner asked. "'William Harker.' "'Age?' Twenty-seven. "'You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan?' "'Yes.' 
You were with him when he died. Near him. How did that happen? Your presence, I mean. I was visiting him at his place to shoot and fish. A part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Well, thank you. Uh, stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors <laughs> laughed. Against the somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle, and turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted, began to read. 2. What may happen in the field of wild oats? The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun, but we only had one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by a trail through the chaparral. On the other side was comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right and partly in front, a noise as of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We started a deer, I said. I wish we had brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. Oh, come, I said, you are not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you? Still, he did not reply, but catching a sight of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the intensity of his look. Then I understood that we had serious business in hand, and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. "'What is it? What the devil is it?' I asked. "'The damned thing!' He replied without turning his head. His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind, which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly toward us. Nothing that I had ever seen had affected me so strangely as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember, and tell it here because, singularly enough, I recollected it then, that once in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of a group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and detail, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled, almost terrified me. We so rely on the orderly operation of familiar laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. So now, the apparently causeless movement of the herbage and the slow, undeviating approach of the line of disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulder and fire both barrels at the agitated grain. 
Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud, savage cry. A scream like that of a wild animal. Then, flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At that same instant, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke. Some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony, and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat, and may heaven and mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder, and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he had been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him, and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if through an enveloping uproar of such sounds of rage and fury as I had never heard from the throat of man or brute. For a moment only, I stood irresolute. Then, throwing down my gun, I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some sort of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased, but with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw again the mysterious movement of the wild oats, prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of the wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. 3. A man, though naked, may be in rags. The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body, altogether naked and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish-black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they had been beaten with a bludgeon. There were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved round to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief which had been passed under the chin and knotted on top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Some of the jurors who had risen up to get a better view repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another, each of which he held up a moment for inspection. All were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had, in truth, seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. "'Gentlemen,' the coroner said, "'we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty has been already explained to you. 
If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. The foreman rose, a tall bearded man of sixty, coarsely clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this your last witness escape from? Mr. Harker, said the coroner gravely and tranquilly. From what asylum did you last escape? Harker flushed crimson again but said nothing, and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir, said Harker, as soon as he and the officer were left alone with the dead man, I suppose I am at liberty to go? Yes. Harker started to leave, but paused with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The book that you have there, I recognize it as Morgan's diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like— The book will cut no figure in this matter, replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, with which various degrees of effort all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks all the same they had fits. 4. An Explanation from the Tomb In the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries having possibly a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence. Possibly the coroner thought it not worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining follows would run in a half-circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center, and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I thought at first that he had gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do odors impress some cerebral center with images of the thing that emitted them? September 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they arose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successively disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time, but along the entire length of the ridge all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Ugh, I don't like this. Several weeks' entries are missing, three leaves being torn from the book. September 27th. It has been about here again. I find evidences of its presence every day. I watched again all last night in the same cover, gun in hand, double-charged with buckshot. In the morning the fresh footprints were there as before, yet I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly sleep at all. It is terrible, insupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they are fanciful, I am mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No, this is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th. I can stand it no longer. I have invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. 
I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7th. I have the solution of the mystery. It came to me last night, suddenly, as by revelation. How simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds that we cannot hear. At either end of the scale, there are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song. Suddenly, in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At no point could a leader have been visible to all. There must have been a signal of warning or command, high and shrill above the din, but by me, unheard. I have observed, too, the same simultaneous flight when all were silent, among not only blackbirds but other birds, quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It is known to seamen that a school of whales basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean, miles apart, with the convexity of the earth in between, will sometimes dive at the same instant, all gone, out of sight, in a moment. The signal has been sounded, too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck, who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of a cathedral are stirred by the base of the organ. As with sounds, so with colors. At each end of the solar spectrum, the chemist can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays. They represent colors, integral colors in the composition of light, which we are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors that we cannot see. And God help me, the damned thing is of such a color. Well, as the old saying goes, what you don't know can't hurt you, but sometimes what you can't see, well, that could do you some harm. And just a few more notes about this story and Ambrose Bierce to close the book on that. While this story was less farcical or absurd than The Man and the Snake, there were still some elements where Bierce showed his sense of humor, such as in the title of the first section where, uh, where it said, uh, one does not always eat what is on the table. And, of course, on the table in this case was a dead man. And then there was the third section, a man though naked may be in rags. And, of course, that refers to the state of the fellow that was on the table that we referred to in the first section. So, let's close the book on Ambrose Bierce for now. And, again, I'm glossing over a lot of details here. But, in late 1913, at the age of 71, Ambrose Bierce went through some of his old Civil War battlefields uh, on a tour and ended up joining the army of Pancho Villa as an observer during the Mexican Revolution. And from there, he essentially disappeared and was never heard from again. There are some theories as to what may have happened to him. Uh, I'm not going to go into those at this time uh, because none of them have been proven in any way. So we don't really know what his final fate was or when uh, he actually died. In fact, it's been disputed that he even joined Pancho Villa's army in the first place. So that's not 100% known either. So, Ambrose Bierce really is a mysterious and fascinating character. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Stories of Your and Yours. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I surely have enjoyed putting it together. And if you have enjoyed it, go ahead and throw us a rating and a review on wherever you are listening, whether that be iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn Radio, etc., etc. If you're listening on a podcatcher, go ahead into that iTunes link and leave a review and a rating there. If you don't feel like writing a full review or having it read on the podcast, that's surely fine. Go ahead and leave that five-star rating. You know you want to. You got a link right there in the description, so go for it. And of course, if you are an aspiring author, if you know an aspiring author who wants to get their story read over these virtual waves, send it my way, syypodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow the show on social media, facebook.com slash syypodcast, Twitter and Instagram at syypodcast. Now for next week, if you follow the show on Facebook, you've pretty much already seen what we're doing next week. And I'll leave it at that for now, other than to say that this story embodies the old phrase, be careful what you wish for. That's it for this week's episode. My name is Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.